Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is presented as the compassionate son of man who comes to seek and save the lost. That's what it will say in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus is born into a world that's dominated by Rome. The emperor has the ability to make a decision and the inhabitants of the world will march in one direction or another. And even though Jesus is born into a Roman world, it's still a Jewish universe. It's a Jewish universe that's made by God in the beginning. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the stars. He creates all of the rise and fall of empires. So long before the rise of the Roman Empire and long after its demise, the God of heaven is going to plan and purpose and prepare and then send a savior into the world. The same savior will one day return in unlimited power, in unspeakable glory with an innumerable multitude. Luke's genealogy of Jesus will go all the way back to Adam in chapter 3, verse 38. And the whole world is seen as the sphere where Jesus is going to change the complexion of the universe where God himself is going to plan and make possible redemption. In chapter 2, verse 14, again in verse 32, and again in chapter 3, verse 6, if you just peek ahead, we sang it, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. If you turn the page of your Bible, in verse 32, it says, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. Luke is concerned about the whole world. And he's also concerned about sinners. He'll use that word sinner 
Not once, not twice, not five times, not even ten times, but 16 times throughout this gospel. And more than any other gospel writer, Luke mentions women and children. And Luke will give us the most detailed account of the Savior's birth. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's familiar with the fact that Luke is a physician. And so it makes perfect sense that he's going to pay attention to the details. The chapter features the advent in verses 1 through 7, the announcement in verses 8 through 20, the adoration of the angels in verses 21 through 40. But our focus is going to be on the advent this morning in verses 1 through 7. And while I was preparing this, I, I, I was reading an interesting survey that was done by Lifeway Research. It revealed that most Americans want more religious meaning in the Christmas season. 65% say Christmas should be more about Jesus. Now this survey is remarkable for a number of reasons because I was familiar with an earlier survey that was done in 2014. A similar survey done by the same firm just four years ago found that 79% of Americans said that Christmas season should be more about Jesus. What is also interesting is the percentage of people who disagreed with the statement. Christmas should be more about Jesus. Imagine you come to the conclusion, I don't believe that. I don't think so. I, that's just wrong that Christmas should be about Jesus. Now, again, in both 2014 and 2018, the numbers shifted amazingly in a couple of different ways. In, 24, eight, in 2014, 18% disagreed. And in, in, excuse me, in 2014, 18% disagreed. In 2018, 19% disagreed. In other words, in the last four years, there's only been a shift of 1%. The remarkable shift came from those who were unsure even how to answer the question. It jumped in 2014 from 3% to 16% today. Scott McConnell, the executive director of Lifeway Research, noted, quote, saying Jesus should be more about Jesus, or saying Christmas should be more about Jesus is a little like saying Thanksgiving should be about giving thanks. <laughs> it's in the name of the holiday. Yet it appears that there's less cultural expectation for the celebrations of the Christmas holiday to include a religious aspect. Expectation. What an interesting word. Expectation. We live in a world that could broadly be broken down into three categories. Those who believe that the Messiah has Come, those who believe that the Messiah will come, and then those who struggle. They literally struggle to hold out any kind of hope. 
There are people who love Christmas but don't necessarily love Jesus. I was listening to another radio broadcast and then I read yet another article in a major news outlet, the Wall Street Journal. It said there are many, many people who love Christmas but they don't love Christ. And their answer was, well, it's complicated. Uh, how do you understand this? Well, a recipe, at least for a Christless Christmas that I've come up with, is in order to have a Christless Christmas, you have to have equal parts of sentiment, secularism, and then throw in a pinch of selflessness. You see, sentiment is emotion without commitment. And secularism is a way of saying, I can be happy, and I can have life, and I can have love, and I can have everything that I need, but I don't necessarily need Jesus. It's interesting. What are you hoping for, for Christmas? What is it that you want? More presents? Less grief? What do you want more than anything? Look at the decree by Caesar. Look at how interesting this is. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. And this is going to come as a surprise to no one. On the first Christmas, the Roman government, government wanted more money from its citizens. The government wanted more taxes from its subjects. Now again, that's not miraculous to anyone sitting in this room or listening. If, if I said to you, does it shock you that the government wants your money? And most of you will say, I'm not shocked by that. Is it a miracle that they would want more money? No. But it's interesting to me that when I asked you what you want for Christmas, if you answered money, the character you're most going to identify in the Christmas story with is Caesar. Because that's what he wants. He has no idea that the Messiah is coming. He know, has no idea that a Savior is on its way. If anything, he thinks he's the Savior. And by the way, people who don't believe in God still believe in a Savior. They believe that someone will save them from poverty inequality. It might come as a surprise to you that God can use even a greedy government to push his story forward. 
The Messiah has to have a birthplace. And the narrative of the Bible includes three continents. There's Asia and Africa and Europe. And Asia is chosen by God. But Asia comprises many languages and people groups. And so the ancient Roman province of Syria includes districts known as the Galilee and Samaria and Judea. And Judea is the elect province. But even that province, there are numerous towns towns and villages, but in history past, in the depths of the past, one small village had been laid aside by God. And the decree by Caesar Augustus made it necessary for a couple to travel at the most inopportune time. Some scholars are disturbed by the fact that we have no historical evidence for this specific census, they won't allow Luke's record to stand on its own merit, but we have ample evidence that Augustus, this Caesar Augustus, reorganized the administration of the empire and conducted numeral, numerous local censuses. It's, it's common knowledge among historians that Caesar Augustus was born Gaius. Octavius in 63 BC. He later became known as Octavian. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar who was murdered in 44 BC. Caesar adopted Octavian as his son and after the death of Julius Caesar, Octavian joined two others in what was called a triumvirate or a board of three. It consisted of Marcus, Lepidus, Mark Antony, and Octavian. A civil war broke out between Mark Antony and Octavian. Antony allied himself with Cleopatra of Egypt. They combined their forces only to be defeated by Octavian at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Octavian conquers Egypt the following year. Anthony and Cleopatra commit suicide. The Roman Senate recognizes the supremacy of Octavian and then bestows upon him the title Augustus. And the month August is named after him. Anybody born in August here? Just a couple of you? A couple of people born in August. It's okay. You, you weren't born... How many of you were born in December? Oh, you always get ripped off. Huh? They go, this is your Christmas present and your birthday present. Like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, God was going to use Augustus as his divine agent to fulfill his perfect will. And that's what I want you to know. That's what I want to bring to your attention. That there's a series of events that unfold one after another in order to create this perfect situation that's going to result in the coming of the Savior. Luke might have been making reference to an otherwise unknown census or he may have been treating the provincial census that was undertaken by Quirinius as part of a larger Roman administrative policy. We have evidence that Quirinius served as governor of Syria 
from 6 AD to 7 AD, and that census was conducted in Judea around 6 AD. This particular census and the revolt that followed are mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. The present problem is this place is the census that Luke is talking about 10 years too late in the account. The birth of Jesus was prior to the death of Herod the Great, which is a firmly established fact of history in 4 BC. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. And again, earlier in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There's several different solutions that have been offered, including inscriptional evidence that Quirinius may have been governor twice. He was first the governor in 10 BC to 7 BC, and then again in 6 to, to 9 AD. Others suggest that Quirinius held a broad administrative posting that included the entire Middle East, and it was at this time that the census began. The actual Greek text reads, quote, while Quirinius was governing or had charge over Syria. Another possibility is that Quirinius was completing a census that had begun by the previous governor, but it had failed to find fruition and completion. In all three proposals, Quirinius would oversee and complete the census that was authorized by Caesar. Here's what I've discovered. When the skeptic says the Bible's wrong... It's been my experience that the skeptic has always proved wrong. Luke provides specific details. It's well known that the Romans often used censuses for registrations to aid in military conscription or taxation. But Jews, Jews were exempt from military duty. But they weren't exempt from taxes. And the decree forces Joseph and Mary to make a journey from Nazareth to the Galilee to where both Mary and Joseph had their ancestral home. You should ask yourself this question. Why does Luke care? Why is this information even important? It's because the birth of Jesus is rooted in history. It's not simply rooted in prophecy. It is. It isn't even simply rooted in theology. It is. But prophecy and theology and history are going to come together at this particular moment in order to satisfy everything that God wants to have happen. The Lord is going to use this special event to fulfill his plan for a savior to be born. The Lord is going to use this special event to move Joseph and Mary away from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the Lord is going to use this event to fulfill specific prophecies. Politicians, tax people. There's nothing miraculous about government taxing people. Some of you are aware that the government has shut down. 
And guess what? It'll open back up. And tax day will still come. And they'll have an expectation that you will give to them. But the prophecies given in the past by the prophets included certain well-known facts. The Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. He would be a descendant of Judah. He would be a Jew. He would be of the lineage of David. He would be born in Bethlehem. And the Apostle Paul may have served as a partial inspiration for this stunning narrative in the book of Galatians While Luke was still his companion, Paul mentions how the Jews were slaves to sin. How in their zeal to keep the law and honor the law, they became slaves of the law. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 3 it says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children, unquote. God sent Jesus at exactly the right time, to exactly the right place, to purchase freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that we, he could adopt us as his very own children. In that acronym that you see a Savior is born, I, I want to just give you just a, a, just a brief acronym. We needed S, a suitable Savior. We needed an A, Almighty Savior. We needed a V, Vicarious Savior. We needed an immutable Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the universal Savior. Jesus, in fact, must be a royal Savior. He must be a descendant. Of David. And so the decree moves the descendants to exactly the right place. Verse 4 Joseph also went up from the Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, Beth is house, Lechem is bread. It's the house of bread because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So when it says in verse 4, he went up from the Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. The city's kind of an elaborate term for a tiny, tiny town. The Greek term polis can mean a village, a town, or a city. And so it's used in both places as the city of Nazareth and the city of David. The little town of Bethlehem is located about five miles south of Jerusalem. So the Bible... Actually, it's about five miles north and west of Jerusalem. 
The Bible lists Bethlehem as the birthplace and the home of David. In verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his pledged wife, who was with child. In chapter 1, verse 27, we read, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the word translated virgin, parthenos, means young, unmarried, normally it includes virginity. In that culture, a young woman could be pledged or engaged as young as 12 to 14 years old. A formal contract was drawn up between parents. It could only be broken by a legal divorce. And so their pledge or their engagement was much stronger in that culture. It could not be nullified except by a legal divorce. So infidelity would have been treated as adultery. And the young woman would live with her parents until the actual marriage ceremony took place, which was usually about a year after the pledge. Was Mary legally married to Joseph at the time of the conception and the birth of the child? If you want to know the answer, go to gotquestions.org. No, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is yes. However, the actual consummation of the marriage doesn't take place until after the birth of Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 reminds us that Micah chapter 5 verse 2 predicts that the Messiah is going to be born in the house of bread. The bread that comes down from heaven. The one who is David's son. The one who's greater than David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, David is made a promise by God. It says, quote, when your days are fulfilled, that means you're going to die, and you rest with your fathers, just in case you didn't get the first hint, I will set up your seed after you, that means offspring who will come from your body, just in case you think it's a metaphor, just in case you think it's a symbol, just in case you don't get it, that someone who will literally, physically, genetically be the offspring of David, and it says, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When God makes that promise to David, he also initiates an enigma, a mystery. Something that is unbelievable. Something that Jesus will later himself bring to the religious leader's attention. He will come to them and they will say to him, what gives you the right to do what you're doing? And he goes, I'll tell you if you will tell me this. The Messiah, 
Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. How is it possible then that David in the spirit says, calls him my Lord? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, when he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. The Lord says, I am going to be the Messiah's father. He also says that David is going to be his father. How is that even possible? How can the Messiah be God's son and David's son at exactly the same time? And the only way that that's going to be possible is that a virgin is going to have to give birth to this Messiah. He is David's son and he is God's son. And look at the delivery of the child. Look what it says in verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The due date, established in eternity past, predicted and prophesied, pushed, pushed into the future, has finally come. The days are completed. For her to be delivered. There was a trendy Hollywood maternity shop. It received a note from its celebrity client. It said, quote, Dear sir, you have not yet delivered that maternity dress I ordered. Please cancel the order. My delivery was faster than yours. We have an expectation. We have an expectation that when we send a package, it should go to where it belongs. Some of you stood in line this week and carefully made sure those packages went to the place where you would hope that they would go. For some of you, they came on time. For others, they were delayed. God's package is going to arrive at exactly the right time. You've heard the expression that a picture is worth a thousand words. But the words in verse 7 conjure a thousand pictures. The first picture of the Savior in Luke's gospel is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. At Christmas time, this is a very familiar picture. This baby wrapped in linen cloths that have been separated and then wrapped around the child, almost like a tamale or a burrito. You just take that child, you wrap its arms and its legs together so that he is from the top to the bottom, unable literally to move. It, it, it gives a sense of, of, of comfort, 
to the child. But this description that Luke gives of the child is one of utter helplessness and humility. This is a real child. This is a human being. And the passage reeks of poverty and inconvenience. Joseph and Mary don't have health insurance. They don't have adequate housing. Luke simply states that that the cave and the manger is the only option because this is the note that's given because there was no room for them in the end. By the way, the word translated in, katalama, doesn't mean hotel. It doesn't mean motel. It doesn't even mean bread and breakfast. It was a word that would normally apply to a guest room in a private residence, or an informal caravanassery. You may, may not know what that is, but in the ancient world of the Middle East, travelers would gather, they would make their way across the land in passages. They would make a journey and, and they would camp together. So a caravanassery was where travelers would gather. If I were to try and think of something that somewhat fits the modern circumstance, think of a KOA campground. But the, there's no campers. There's no cars. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, you know the story how... A person is making their way from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he gets waylaid by thieves and he is taken to a public inn, different word, pandokeon. Luke will use an entirely different word to describe a place that was used in the ancient world to provide shelter on a longer term basis. He could have used that word, but he doesn't because we have every reason to believe that literally hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims have made their way to Bethlehem and there quite simply isn't any room. The same decree that drove Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem must have also sent hundreds, perhaps thousands to that tiny village because there were many people who claimed direct descent from David. We learn from Matthew's account that wise men will come months later and they'll find Mary and Joseph in the city of David, but at that point they will be in a house. So if you have a manger scene at home with three wise men, you need to put them outside because it's gonna still be another 18 months before they make their way into Jerusalem. In the brutal slaughter of the innocents, we're left with the impression that wicked King Herod destroys all of the babies in the tiny village to ensure that he can eliminate royal competition and retain rule in his tiny kingdom of Judea. In that statement, that simple statement, no room, we have a type and a picture of a world of sin and selfishness and greed and unkindness. But there might be even something else. We don't have to imp 
imply an evil or a wicked motive in the fact that there's no room, it could have just been circumstances. It could have just been overwhelming circumstances. It could have been apathy or indifference. It could have been something other than selfishness and greed. But how is it possible? How is it possible to live in a world that's so consumed with its own problems and affairs that somehow a poor, pregnant woman and her husband far from home receive no support? Let's give the hospitality industry of Bethlehem the benefit of the doubt for just a moment. But how is it possible among so many that a certain decision was made? How do we make our decisions? How do we think about the world in which we're living in and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and how are we to think about life with Jesus or without Jesus. I read another story of a pilgrim in the past. It was the fall of 1797. The manager of Baltimore's largest hotel refuses lodging to a man who's dressed like a farmer. He thought his lowly appearance would discredit his inn, and so the man left and he took a room elsewhere. Later, the the innkeeper discovered that he had turned away none other than the vice president of the United States of America, Thomas Jefferson. Immediately, he sent a note to the famed patriot asking him to return as his guest. Jefferson replied by instructing the messenger as follows, quote, tell him I've already engaged a room. I value his good intentions highly, but if he has no place for a dirty American farmer, he has no room for the vice president of the United States of America. You know, We find room for sentiment. We find room for secularism. We find room even for acts of kindness, a random act of selflessness and celebration. But if you are going to have room for Jesus you're going to have to reflect on why he came. Why he was here to begin with. You see, the Bible says that God is going to send a Savior. We're going to talk more about that for Christmas Eve. But in verse 11, it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. You see, a savior is a person who will save from something. Is it catastrophe? Is it oppression? 
the thing that Jesus comes into the world primarily to do is to save from sin. The description Luke gives was never meant to inspire curious Christmas cards or even timeless and endless nativity scenes. And I am a fan of Christmas cards and nativity scenes, but the picture, the picture that Luke gives isn't to generate sentiment inside of your heart, not emotion without commitment. When you see what's being discussed, you're supposed to be shocked because the Savior is born in poverty and humility absent even the most fundamental hospitalities that were usually present in the ancient world or the Middle East, we're left with the impression that the delivery of the baby is in isolation, perhaps with no help. She brings forth her firstborn son and she wraps him in swaddling clothes. Some of you know the hymn. Gentle Mary laid her child lowly in a manger. He is still the undefiled, but no more a stranger. Son of God of humble birth, beautiful the story. Praise his name in all the earth. Hail the King of glory. There is something about the poverty and the humility and the vulnerability that tugs at our heart. Bethlehem is dotted with limestone caves that were used to shelter animals in the night. And according to tradition, even by the end of the first century and the the beginning of the second century, it was said that one of those caves was a manger that was hewn out of the limestone rock that Mary places her infant child, this tiny, vulnerable, at-risk child, will grow up and become the central figure in all of human history The Bible's revelation of that child incorporates all of the child's past and earthly ministry and future destiny, but there's something about a child that tugs at every human heart. Because you cannot, it is impossible to hold a child in your arms and not wonder what he or she will become. Have you ever held a tiny baby and thought about the life and the future that's in store for that baby? Royal babies are normally born under royal circumstances. But our first glimpse of the Savior by Luke, even though it's in a manger... It won't be our last picture. We're invited to picture the circumstances of our Savior's birth in humility and poverty. But don't let the first look be your last look. And there's the paradox. 
This Jesus, born in humility and poverty and vulnerability, is going to grow up and gain unprecedented glory. I read something interesting when I was preparing this message. In 2017, did you know that 3.8 plus million babies were born in the United States last year? Someone gave this definition of a baby. Quote, a baby is a small member of the home that makes love stronger, days shorter, nights longer, <laughs> bankroll smaller, home happier, clothes shabbier. The past. Forgotten. The future worth living for. I'm going to invite you to allow Jesus to grow up in your life, to live and to die, and to come back to life and to ascend into heaven. Has the resurrected and ascended Lord been given the supreme control of your life? Are you waiting in earnest expectation for his coming? Do you live every moment in light of that earnest expectation? Jesus is the Savior. A savior is born. That's indisputable. What isn't in dispute is whether or not he's your savior. This baby will grow and live and die a painful death. He will come back to life. He will ascend into heaven. He will judge the living and the dead. This Savior, this Savior will one day rule the world. This Savior will make the singular decision about what will happen to you in your future. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50 years. Aristotle taught for 40 more years. Jesus will teach for three years. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from those men who are among the greatest philosophers in all of antiquity. Jesus paints no pictures Yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus writes no poetry, but Dante and Milton and scores of the world's greatest poets are inspired by him. He composes no music, still Haydn, Handel. Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reach their highest perfection in the melody and hymns and symphonies and oratories that they composed in his praise. Every 
fear of human greatness has been enriched by a baby who will be born in a manger, who will apprentice as a carpenter's son, who will grow up, and the whole world will be divided into two categories, everyone who came before him and everyone who came after him. We're going to have our kids come up here in just a moment and we're, they're going to prepare to sing a song for you. But I just want to remind you of where we began our message. Each and every one of you is preparing a recipe. A recipe for a Christless Christmas or a Christ-filled Christmas. In order to have a Christless Christmas, all you need is sentiment and secularism and a pinch of selflessness. You don't have to be good all the time. You just have to be good at Christmas time. But if you want a recipe for a Christ-filled Christmas, it's going to require that you reflect on the why Jesus came to begin with. Jesus comes into the world to save sinners. That means that you need to repent of your sin and receive the Savior. The world will celebrate. But Christians, Christians do more than celebrate. They rejoice. And so... Here's the question. Will this baby lying in a manger remain in the manger? In the story, no, he's going to grow up. But what about your story? Will he grow up in your life, in your heart? Will he grow up and die for your sin and come back to life to prove that he's your savior? Will he ascend into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he ever lives and makes prayers for you? And will he come back? And will he come back to receive you to himself? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray that Jesus, who enters life in poverty, will return in riches. That he departs this life in brutality, but he will come again in glory. That he will die a most miserable death, but that death will secure life and love. And hope. Lord, I pray that the thing that we would long for most at Christmas would be our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for our children. Lord, we are excited. 
we're excited for who they're going to grow up and become. In Jesus' name, amen.